1: Good morning. You're listening to Our Wild World, and I'm Ellie Weiss with Wild Eyes Foundation. My guests today are John Platt and Tara Lohan with The Revelator, a publication under the Center for Biological Diversity and the column Extinction Countdown. John and Tara are going to highlight what stories The Revelator will be paying attention to in 2020 and provide us some points we should all be paying attention to. A rundown of the 2019 Extinction Countdown and what we should learn from them for the years ahead, which wouldn't be complete if we didn't discuss what is happening in Australia and the challenges to our water and drinking water. This connects to actions of our government and the toll of rollbacks of environmental standards. So, as you can tell, we have a lot to cover this morning, and a little bit of background. John is the an award-winning environmental journalist, and his work has appeared in Scientific American, Audubon, Motherboard, and numerous other magazines. He is uh, the lead author of Extinction Countdown, which has run continuously since 2004 and covered news and science related to more than 1,000 endangered species. Tara Lohan is Deputy Editor of The Revelator and has worked for more than a decade as a digital editor and environmental journalist focused on the intersections of energy, water, and climate. Her work has been published by The Nation, American Prospect, High Country News, Grist, Pacific Standard, and many others. So now that we have a little background of the expertise of the guests we're talking today, I'd like to welcome you both.
2: Thank you. Glad
3: to be here. Yes, thanks for having us.
1: I'm thrilled to have you back, John. Once again, great to have you back, and Tara. We haven't talked before, but I'm really looking forward to what we're going to cover today. So, Tara, how about we start with just a little bit of background about how you got in to where you're at now with the Revelator?
3: Yeah. So I have been I've been with the Revelator for about the last year and a half, and. Before that, I spent over a decade writing about a broad range of environmental issues, but I did a lot of writing about water, particularly drinking water, and also energy issues. I covered the fracking beat almost exclusively, uh, along with a a little bit of other stuff um, for about four years, and then just before I came to the Revelator, I was working for a publication called Water Deeply, and we covered water issues across the American West, Um, and that actually kicked off during California's drought, um, but we expanded to cover a lot of issues that were happening in the American West. And i um, excited to be working at the Revelator and covering all things uh, related to wilderness and wild animals and wild places.
1: And water. You and I have got to have some more conversations because, as we can tell, you know, especially with Australia, what's going on, and everywhere – drought, floods, drought, floods, severe climate change, and uh, feedback loops and ramifications and consequences, we need to do a whole episode just on water. So uh, listeners, we're going to have that to look forward to. But today we have a lot to get into. So why don't we start with the revelator? You know, what are what is the revelator? going to be focusing on for 2020 that we all need to pay attention to and folks you can get to the revelator by going to therevelator.org and their extinction countdown or their reading lists Uh, they have a lot of good information and a lot of um, stories not only that they've covered but lists of what's going on and what we should look out for so let's let's start with you know I don't know, John, do we want to start with the <laughs> extinction countdown and well, what we're going to yeah. be looking at?
2: I mean, extinction countdown is a column that's within the Revelator. And the Revelator in general is going to be focusing very heavily on the extinction crisis in 2020. Um, we're looking at the species that are in peril, the ones we're losing, the forces that are causing these things to to to, to suffer. Um, we're going to be looking at the big picture and the little picture, the, micro, uh, the megafauna and the microfauna. And, uh, and we're trying to, to break it down. We're also going to be looking at, at a lot of other things. Um, the courts, the political actions throughout uh, the United States and the world, climate change and how that's affecting us. Uh, water issues are going to be huge. Uh, and public lands, we've, we've, we've got so many threats to that. And we've done a lot of looking uh, over the past couple of years at plastic pollution, and that remains a topic people are incredibly passionate about, so we're going to keep hitting that.
1: This is a lot to cover in one swallow. <laughs> and you yeah. know the 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 thing about it is they're all so deeply intertwined and interconnected. And I think why don't we start there that you know we've been looking at symptoms, you know, trying to fix plastic, get rid of straws, ban bla- ban plastic bags. And then we look at drought and you know floods where we have a tendency to highlight in a lot of the news headlines each individual thing without necessarily understanding how they are so deeply connected. John, would you just fill us in a little more on that?
2: Yeah. Well, one of the classic examples um, that has really come up to light over the past year, you look at plastic pollution. Okay, we all know plastic is bad. It's made from fossil fuels. It, it, you know, the, the, uh, the, it can harm wildlife when it's disposed of improperly. But they're creating all these new cracker plants to turn natural gas into plastic. So it is actually fueling the climate crisis. Uh-huh. Um, and then as plastic breaks down, you've got all these issues with toxins and poisons and, and pollutants centering the, the, uh, the, the, the ecosphere. So uh, it's, it's all tied together. So you're not going to... You can't say plastic is going to cause a, a specific extinction, but on the other hand, all these things working together, they all, they all, like you said, it's a big feedback loop.
1: Yeah, and they end up having, you know, cascades of consequences all through the trophic levels. We'll get a little environmental jargon going there <laughs> because we used to think of trophic cascades only in terms of, you know, the apex predators down through the ecosystem environment. What we're now seeing... And, um, you know, China is a good example right now, and Australia's fires are a good example. What decades of not paying attention and getting on top of these issues, which we knew since the 1960s, that we didn't start soon enough, we have to start now. So why don't you both tell us a little bit about some of the upside news that we hope to address in dealing with with some of these issues and then we'll, we'll move on to, um, you know, get into China and Australia itself.
3: Uh, well, I can just jump in with one thing since John just mentioned that the plastic pollution, um, you know, our job as journalists is, is to hopefully tie some of these issues together for people to make the connections between, you know, what's happening with fracking in West Virginia and what's happening with, you know, plastic bags, washing ashore um, on the other side of the world. But I think also, Activists are making these connections as well and really elegantly and really um, enthusiastically now um, at the political level. And we're seeing some of this happening in California. There was a bill introduced last year that would really take a, a comprehensive look at plastic pollution and focus on producer responsibility and making sure the companies that are producing this plastic waste are responsible for it. And that means drastically reducing the amount of plastic that's being used, but also thinking about the life cycle of these products. Um, that did not make it through, uh, get passed in last year's session in California, but it's going to be back in the docket again. Um, it's the first of this that we've seen in the U.S., although it's being done in other places like in the EU. Um, so that is, I think, a, <clears throat> a, good, a good progress being made um, in tackling some of these issues more comprehensively.
1: So why do you think we're, not, we're lagging behind on these issues where so many European countries and elsewhere across the world are tackling them is it because the corporate stakeholders are here and it would take a big bite out of their profits
3: i think that's i think that's a big part of it for sure and i think when we're talking about plastic pollution you're actually dealing with two very extremely powerful and well-funded industries in the plastic industry itself and then the fossil fuel industry as well and they have a lot to lose um the more plastic we cut um, but we also have a lot to gain so i think that um it's, it's looking like that this bill might get a little bit more, um, at least some more coverage this year. Um, I don't know exactly what its prospects are for passing, but um, it's being talked about, and I think it'll be more broadly covered, and maybe other states will start following California's lead at introducing similar legislation.
1: Well, I think it's really important because in the long run, even though the short-run, you know, fossil fuel industry and uh, the others that would not benefit from this kind of legislation being put in in the short term in the long term they would because we have the opportunity to have a functioning planet longer
3: yes that seems definitely important for everyone and and there are different rules already for for these companies operating when they sell products in europe they have different regulations already um, and more producer responsibility so we definitely know that it's possible they just haven't been made to do it in the u.s and in many other countries in the world
1: Okay, so I have a question. So let's say we ban plastics. We get rid of, you know, know, some of the the obvious ones, straws, plastic bags, single-use containers. Um, There is the headline that Coca-Cola is already ramping up more plastic bottles for 2020 and the next decade. And then they say they're, you know, trying to um, do it more environmentally friendly. And then there's Nestle, you know, coming in and taking water. So how do we tie this together to say this is good news? (laughs)
3: Um, Maybe we're not quite at the good news point just yet. um, But I do think that there's a growing awareness about a lot of these issues. Um, The fact that a lot of people are are understanding more that, you know, bottled water and, and disposable plastics are not, the right way to go but they do need to have the option to be able to purchase other products and that is where I think the focus on producer responsibility comes in um, and, and making sure that these companies are, are limiting or switching away from using plastic altogether in terms of what they're producing. And also I think a lot, a lot of the reason why focus from, from activism groups are on the actual root of the problem which is coming from the fossil fuel production um, and the environmental impacts that that has and trying to tie those things together.
1: Right. So I'm just going to segue here for a second. You do a lot of work on uh, ocean and ocean pollution. So plastics are a big part of what is now in the ocean. It's filtered all the way down to the bottom uh, of the food chain and worked its way back up. Um, we're reading headlines that plastic is now in rain. Plastic has been in the, found in the stomachs of whales that have been washing up on every coast, in the stomachs of birds, in our stomachs. So plastic pollution is a huge issue. What can we look for from the revelator on uh, a variety of those, what you'll be talking about or exposing
2: Yeah, we're going to keep talking about the health impacts as we learn more about them. There's still so much more to learn. Everything, we'll try not to focus on each individual slice as it comes out, but look a little bit deeper and look for threads as the science emerges. And we're going to keep looking at these new laws, these new emerging laws that are trying to, to, as Tara said, put some responsibility on the producers. Uh, Because we've done an awful lot over the past few years about trying to educate individual consumers. Consumers can only do so much. Uh, and we, we, only, we can only place so much responsibility on Tom, Dick, and Harry. Uh, we need to look at the entire system and, and make sure that, uh, that there are solutions available and, and see how they're working. So we're going to continue. We've always loved to look at things, uh, emerging solutions to see how they're doing and if they're repl- replicable in other places. And, uh, and that'll, be, that'll be on our agenda.
1: So um, when it comes down to the individual, as you said, there's only so much we can do. We can lower our individual footprint. But, you know, 10, 20 years ago, that would have made a bigger difference. We are kind of beyond that. And it does bring kind of a hopelessness to the average person. So the hope here is that if we understand how you're connecting the threads up to, up the chain, to the top of the pyramid that we can enjoin join and advocate to those organizations that are tackling those problems at the top tier.
2: Yeah, exactly. And there's not a day that goes by where I don't talk to someone who's who's feeling that hopeless feeling. But anything you do uh, can help counter that. If you take any action, whether it is, you know, recycling an individual op- object, or talking to uh, your your buyer, your your company, who's who's responsible for making office supply decisions. Hey, make, you know, make these make this better decision for for the products that we use here. Or, talk writing to a company and saying, Hey, your product has got all this extra packaging we don't need. Try to scale it up, um, and then talk to your friends about solutions that you found that work, because that. You you're learning things through experience. You may as well convey that to other people and and share it and uh, and keep that rolling.
1: So it does put a lot of power into the consumer buying dollar. It does start there.
2: It starts there, but it needs to go further than that. It needs we need to be uh, cognizant, but we also need to put pressure on the co- on the corporations and uh, and government entities to do better. Right. And I think the more that we can say X works, Y doesn't and we can prove that scientifically and economically and everything else, the more we uh, as journalists and as individuals and as as a society have uh, as evidence to make, a, make better decisions and make sure that things uh, move forward.
1: Well, that's really good. So, you know, in talking further on the extinction crisis and as we just discussed the role of plastics in that and as it trickles down through the ecosystems, And the other species that you'll be focusing on in 2020, do you have a short list? Do we want to go there?
2: (laughs) I mean, we we uh, talked about
1: the vaquita last time. We're probably going to lose the vaquita.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, we're we're talking a species that this this porpoise is down to somewhere between six and 19, probably in the 10 range. They are breeding, which is amazing. They live in the Gulf of California. They have a fairly wide range of ocean to swim in they have spotted some newborns uh, recently so that's great news that they are reproducing if we can stop people from fishing illegally on that ocean then there's the chance that the vaquita can bounce back and that's kind of the crux of everything if we can relieve some of these pressures uh, species can do better there was just a study out the other day that said that uh, it, it, we we tend not to see these species that are critically endangered how they're making progress because the progress is slow and somewhat invisible. Um, but they are, as long as we can relieve these pressures, going to at least persist. Right. So the, there there's a, there's a lot of studies that show how bad things are. There's a recent study that said birds are in a lot better, a lot worse shape than we thought. So the, the more we know about this stuff. The more we can intervene, so we're going to be paying attention to birds a lot, Um, um, plants. I don't think people in journalism or in the environmental community pay enough attention to endangered plants, and those are that's everything hinges on that. That's the the base of an entire ecosystem. I just wrote an article about thirty-two orchid species in Bangladesh being declared extinct, and when you lose them, you lose you lose.
1: the pollinators, you, you, yeah, exactly. You lose insect
2: habitat, you lose. There, some of them are edible by humans. So have potential medicinal value, um, and you just lose neat species. And then you lose the fungi in the ground that are that help these things grow. So it's all connected. And we're going to be anytime something comes up, we're going to dig deep and, and take a look.
1: This is great. I mean, the Revelator is such a fabulous source. So, listeners, you can subscribe to the Revelator and have it come right into your inbox and pay attention. Go to their Facebook page. There is so much good information information there and top-notch journalists. So, we're going to step away for a minute and take a break, but stick with us because we have a lot more to cover. We'll be right back.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles. W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G Stimulating talk Gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast All the time The number one internet talk station Where your opinion counts VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
1: Welcome back. My guests are John Platt and Tara Lohan with The Revelator. I'm Ellie Weiss, and you're listening to Our Wild World. So at the end of the first section there, we were talking about the extinction countdown, one of the columns John has been writing on for decades, or since 2004, (laughs) a decade, almost a couple decades, so that's a long time of tracking what has been disappearing. So um, it kind of brings me into a crisis that's going on right now uh, when we talk about wildlife and the loss of it and um, wildlife trafficking. China, the new coronavirus that has just hit within the last couple of weeks as a result of wet markets in China, the back rooms where they sell illegal or, um, or poached sometimes legal but not necessarily permitted wildlife in these markets that are centralized locations such as Wuhan where it becomes a major transit hub and what happens when a zoonotic disease jumps from the wild into a vector and then into people. So John, address this a little bit from the extinction countdown crisis avenue, perspective. Yeah.
2: Well, there are a lot of different ways to look at this. Um, and journalists have been have been digging into these wildlife markets for years. But of course, like you mentioned, the, one of the cores is poaching uh, and stealing these animals from the wild, whether live or dead at the time. Um, so this places a lot of pressure on wild populations. And we've, we've talked about a lot of these species that have been affected over the years. The pangolin is the classic example. You've got eight species of pangolin. They're all in tough shape because of the, the, the poaching for the, the wild meat market, essentially, in, in China. Pangolins are used for a lot of things, but that's one of the, the major reasons. Um, and there are entire forests in in stretches of Africa, in Madagascar, in China, that have been defaunated, the, the wildlife has just been removed. Um, Southeast Asia's got this massive uh, snaring crisis, where ch- snares, wire, and wire and and rope, they're cheap and effective. They kill indiscriminately, and they they supply product. I Hate to use that word yeah. uh, to these to these uh, meat markets, and. You know, this is so complex because some of it is just culture. You you go up you, you look back and people have eaten certain foods for millennia and it's it's just part of who they are. Other parts it's the growing sense of prosperity. You've got money to burn, so let's eat a tiger. Um which is just sad and disgusting.
1: And then there's the uh, medicinal market. Yep. Um, and and some of that
2: is traditional medicines, uh, which you know there are certain arguments for and against it. Most of it has never been proven scientifically, and never will because it's bunk. And then you have the the real bunk is the stuff that people are inventing now, the new ways, you know, saying you can treat your your uh, your your headaches from, from drinking too much with a little dose of, of rhino horn. Right. Um, and and or, people or,
1: and people typically think of the extinction crisis in, in game meat, wild meat, in yeah. terms of elephant, ivory, rhino horn, and now the lion bone trade. But what I think we're trying to highlight here is it's much more than that. It's yeah. orchid species. It's rats. It's, it's koala it's bears. bears. It's, it's wolf pups. Rats. It's digging into places in the ecosystem where we didn't go before new roads lumber uh timber production that opens up and fractures tracts of land and brings like ebola first started i'm not comparing ebola to the coronavirus but this is how these things erupt
2: yeah it's exactly true and they start locally and then they travel you think this has been identified as a chinese problem but these these food foods are imported to the United States, to France, to the UK, wherever you go, you're, you're going to find some of these things for sale. Bats on skewers, whatever the case might be. And um,
1: There's the online ca- market as well.
2: Yeah, there is.
1: That's um, huge.
2: It is. And, you know, so they're being shipped all over the world. And, uh, you know, so the entire system is supporting this extinction crisis through this commercialization. Of, of, uh, of wild products and wild meat. And so it places huge pressure on, on wildlife and consequently huge pressure on humans.
1: So here's a little cultural thing I'd like to just segue into a minute. So with what's going on in China, all the backlash from everyone else, you know, anti-China, um, you know, all the clickbait, all of this where people just spew vitriol and this yeah. isn't going to help it's 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 not just a china problem it is a global problem cuz china is putting pressure on the you know source countries where these resources these animals these products are are found and use as expendables the the local population to do the hunting the killing into the illegal wildlife traffic so I think the point I'm trying to make is illegal wildlife crime and trafficking is not just about ivory and rhino horn and lion bones it goes into the very depths of the top down and bottom up of dismantling our ecosystems
2: right it's exactly true and then if there's nothing left in the ecosystem well then why not pave it over
1: uh, uh, uh Yeah, well, it will only last so long. So, you know, a lot of people are trying to also make that connection that without supporting number one resource planet Earth, we will be killing ourselves. And I don't think a lot of people quite understand, you know, that. Earth will, you know, survive. It may take 80 million years, but, you know, do we want to survive? So this is the paradigm shift of the human aspect we have to change our culture and our behavior to respond to these crises we, we are creating on earth right I agree okay and that,
2: that, that involves really tough decisions about our entire food system not just this wild meat but everything we produce um, and you need I think that these are big questions that really tie into each other.
1: Absolutely. So it's, it comes down to that, you know, resources, serv- ecosystem services are not free and the cost of producing food is not free. It goes much deeper. So while we're on this subject of extinction and catastrophe to happen, Tara, Australia, the fires.
3: Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that what's what's been happening in Australia is sort of this This perfect storm of really terrible things coming together all at one time. Um, And there was a lot of reporting pointing out that this is this is what a climate crisis looks like in action. Australia has had back to back droughts, higher than average temperatures. Um, They've had because of climate change, uh, fire seasons that are getting longer and more severe. Um, But on top of that, there is also bad policy. There is um, a lack of effort to address the climate crisis there. as well as in other places, of course. Um, And so there's a lot of coverage of that. But people also, I think, were drawn into the story about how many, the number of wildlife that were being killed there. Um, And one scientist saying that it might be somewhere around a billion, um, which we don't know for sure yet, but certainly quite a lot. Um, And then there were scientists that we talked to that said, hey, this is going to be an incredible blow to conservation efforts. Um, You know, there are decades of work to, to try to preserve some species um, whose numbers are are threatened. And then we have maybe in a couple of weeks them potentially being wiped out. Um, So we also looked at this in terms of not just how this might, this crisis there is highlighting climate impacts, but also that we have a biodiversity and an extinction crisis happening too. And unfortunately, Australia is a poster child for that as well. Um, So we looked a little bit at that. Um, Australia is a biodiversity hotspot. Um, somewhere around 80% of its plant and animal species are found there and not anywhere else. And so it's incredibly important the kind of impacts that these fires are having on the ecosystem there.
1: Well, on the top of it, you know, the loss of species is, is depressing and dramatic. Um, and the extinction vortex, it could drive some of these species into. But on top of that, as you said, the poster child, um, you know, it's decades that got it here. And then the ecosystem biodiversity loss as as the re- result of these fires, so devastating. Can the ecosystems themselves? We always said if the habitats are there, then we can protect the spe- species. But some of these habitats, these these biodiverse hotspots, have have turned to ash.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And and I think also um, Australia is seeing a shift in some of in some of its. Um, in the ecology of some of the areas from from decades of climate change. Um, so places where that don't normally burn are burning now and areas where normally they would regenerate after a fire. They're not able to because there isn't enough time in between fires. We're seeing that to a lesser extent where I live in California as well. Um, and Australia did pass uh, a law in 1999, their uh, Environmental Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is similar to the Endangered Species Act in the U.S., uh, but we found some studies from researchers there that showed that it really wasn't doing anywhere near a good enough job at trying to protect species, and particularly when it came to protecting habitat. Because right now, protecting habitat is one of the the big drivers of extinction there. Um, and so a lot of land is being cleared, particularly for livestock cultivation, and that is impacting species. And this law has really not been, been forced uh, and used adequately to protect species. So that's another problem that has been, as you said, decades in the making.
1: Well, you know... I'm of the older generation. I'm, you know, in my 60s. So when I started conservation back in the 60s, we knew all this. We knew then we had to save the habitat. But we had the habitat to save. We just had to convince people to, you know, protect it and, you know, uh, get people out of it so that we could focus on species. And then, you know, getting into uh, rabbit holes of particular species. And now here we are. 60, 70 years later, one, two generations, and what we've done is a poster child. Do you think we can learn from what we've done, the Australian poster child of what's happening, the other extinctions that are happening, John, that you're writing about? Do you think we can connect these dots to this bigger picture, to the average person, to understand? A lot of people say, "Oh, it's going to take a crisis." We we are in the crisis. Is it going to take each and every individual to face a crisis to hit home?
2: Well, it absolutely is, and um, you know, a lot of people have used the World War II analogy, uh, where everyone came together for the war effort, and we're we're basically in that type of thing now. Um, what I am seeing, in some scope. Is that these photos and these this video that's coming out of Australia is I hope it's creating a bit of a sea change. I'm seeing a lot of people, very, you know, crying and upset. Or I mean, the the, the koala is you know such an icon, um, and people are, are whether we can extend that to further koala conservation to other species remains to be seen. But we need people to. Take, uh, take these things seriously, and, and if you really care about a species, make sure that its habitat is protected. Um, the koala can be an umbrella species for a lot of other uh, creatures that live in and around those same habitats, uh, and we need to hold up, we can't have every species, not every species has that kind of charisma, but we're going to need some, and the more we can conserve, the more we can get people super passionate about these and demand change. The more, we, the more we're going to see it. Whether it's really going to happen, I don't know. But I am seeing a lot of people very upset about these Australian fires and hopefully willing to do something.
1: Well, let's hope so, because um, there is so much at stake. Uh, our future is at stake. So that kind of leads me into, you know, are we looking at a, a climate change peak are we gonna panic you know in 2019 2018 2019 the IPBES report and the IPCC reports came out there's another one that's come out so far in 2020 that says it's a very dreary picture we have 12 years but at the same time in terms of looking at a lot of the biodiversity projects that are going on when we do pay attention and focus on rewilding restoration and i'm not talking about bringing back extinct animals i'm talking about right. bringing back landscapes that function with wildlife that live that people can coexist and live alongside with that are working do you think we have time or do you think we're gonna do we need to peek or panic or where's the middle road that we can look at
2: well, science is going to tell us whether we're peaking uh, on various things. Emissions have continued to climb, but there's the real potential that they could have hit that peak, or they're just about to maybe go down. And I think it's the same with everything. We've been setting up so many opportunities for progress, for 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 emissions reduction, for habitat restoration and protection. These are the this next couple of years. We're going to see if this stuff really works. Um, if we if we've really hit the point. Where we're, we've achieved enough momentum to keep going forward. Um, unfortunately, there's a lot of, lot of regressive work trying to take away that momentum, and, and the, the U.S. government uh, right now is is uh, leading the charge, uh, trying to, to break down the, the water's rules, the clean air rules, taking taking uh, taking their their knives to the Endangered Species Act. Um, so we'll see. But um, I I really remain more positive than negative about a lot of this stuff because i see so much forward motion the more the more people i see standing up we had a great turnout of this almost wasn't quite the blue wave but it was pretty close in 2018 i think we're going to see a pretty good turnout in 2020 whether that extends around the world whether these movements inspired by Greta tunberg and everyone else um remains to be seen but I'm seeing a lot of progress, and I think that that's the stuff we need to hold, we need to hold on to, and and watch, and and quantify and qualify, and see how things move forward.
1: I think you're right. And then I've read somewhere that there is somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 million soon-to-be voters, whether they're coming of age here in the U.S. or um, unregistered that are now reg- registered to address this next election, 2020. So um, I'm not gonna delve into, you know, Trump, not Trump, (laughs) this, that. Do you think we have an opportunity during this next election to, you know, motivate these new 14 million, 4 million? 4 million, I forget the number. It's a lot of millions (laughs) of people um, that, you know, could swing where we're going.
2: I think so. Tara did a great interview a ways back with the, the a group called the Environmental Voter Project, uh, which is motivating people on a on a limited basis. But I think it shows that it's possible.
1: Well, how can yeah. we How can we tell us about that, and where can we find more about it? Yeah, uh, they're really interesting. The Environmental Voter
3: Project was started a, a few years back, uh, I believe in in Boston, but they're operating in a number of different states now. But their their main goal is that. When you ask the average American about how much they care about climate and and environmental issues, it's pretty high. But when you ask people who are regular voters, it's actually quite low. So they saw this. Then we have all this data now about things that people buy and how they vote and all this information about us. And what they're doing is they're harnessing that information to figure out who are the people that care about environmental issues but don't actually go out to vote and they're just targeting those people with messages of getting out to vote and for every single election starting from school board elections all the way up um and it's not advocating for environmental issues outright or any particular candidate it's just getting people who are they know already care about these issues to turn out to the polls um and they're i think they're actually having quite a bit of success with that and i think it's a it's a really interesting model because i interviewed nathaniel stinnett who started the organization he was saying that you know it's a lot it's a lot easier to convince someone who already cares about an issue to vote than it is to try to change somebody's mind at this point about climate change if they don't believe. Um, and so that's where they're putting their resources and their efforts. And I think it's an interesting endeavor.
1: Absolutely. And as Michael Soule has said, and so many of you know the scientists that turned the model that a conservation model that we have been practicing under for the past 50 years that it is a top-down um not bottom-up conservation model, that what we love will protect. So hopefully we'll all get on board with what we love we will protect. So on that note, we're going to step away for a quick break. We still have lots more to discuss, so stick with us, and we'll be right back.
3: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter? You can find us at Voice America TRN.
0: Wildlife. No wild, no life. Big, scary, beautiful. Predators are in danger. Without them, our rivers dry up, our forests don't grow, our communities go hungry, our biodiversity crumbles W-I-L-D-I-Z-E dot O-R-G. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to L.A. Weiss and Our Wild World
1: And welcome back with my guests, John Platt and Tara Lohan from uh, the Center for Biological Diversity, the um, news outlet, uh, The Revelator, and John's column, Extinction Countdown. So we've covered a lot of territory, just touched on any one of these subjects today we could go into in depth. And uh, Tara ended our last section with the Environmental Voter Project, environmentalvoter.org. Org, I believe. It sounds like a fascinating project and I'm really glad to hear of it. I hadn't heard of that before. So Tara, um, your specialty is sort of how water, chemicals, environment and ocean all interconnect in terms of climate change and what's happening. So here's a topic, our drinking water and forever chemicals. This kind of fits into what we were talking about so far.
3: Yeah, so Forever Chemicals have been in the news uh, a good bit lately. And they are a suite of toxic chemicals uh, over branching. It's called PFAS. Um, and they are chemicals that don't break down in the environment very well, and they don't break down in our bodies very well. And they have been used in a whole variety of products over many decades, uh, most famously in as nonstick uh, adhesive in, in Teflon and other kinds of products, also in things that are meant to be... Rainproof and weatherproof, they were used also um, and still are in firefighting foam, uh, which has been a really big problem for folks that live on military bases where there's been a lot of contamination from firefighting foam from military activities. So we've known about these chemicals for a couple decades, but nothing has been done at the federal level yet to set a drinking water standard for that. And one of the things we're seeing in the last year and I think into this year, we're going to see a lot more pressure for there to be action taken by EPA to establish some kind of a, a safety standard at the federal level. There are a couple of states that have done it so far, but not very many, uh, and and the and the, the standard varies a lot as, as to what is considered safe. Um, so there was some movement by Democrats at the end of 2019. They tried to get language in a defense bill because of the relation to military bases and folks that live there. That didn't work. Democrats did pass... Uh, A bill through the House in December, sorry, in January of this year, um, but I don't think it's likely to pass the Senate. And President Trump has said that he would veto it as well. So it seems like that this has been, like many other environmental issues, turning out to be very partisan in nature. Although this is a, a public health issue that affects
1: everyone. So what's standing out to me right now, as I you know peruse back since we began this conversation today, is there are so many efforts that we are trying to do to get passed through our government, and at the same time, our government and this current administration is doing so many rollbacks against clean water, against um, not polluting our rivers and streams, against not stopping plastic, against not, you know, putting the brakes on the fossil fuel industry, and how all of this deeply, deeply connects to everything We need to survive, you know, from the tertiary effects of these toxins building up in the landscape to insects, to mammals, you know, rodenticides, pesticides, the good ones, the bad ones, to um, it just being completely through the ecos, every living being. So, how do we uh, find a positive way to, you know, get... If, if the federal level is not acting upon this and passing these bills, does it now fall to state levels so people in each state, each city, you know, get on board to enact legislation and pass it down up from the grassroots level up?
2: Yes and no. I mean, the states are, are a tremendous battleground and, and experimenting group uh, for for democracy. Everyone always says that. There's a lot of stuff growing, great stuff going on on the city and state level uh, that we need to pay attention to. Uh, there are a number of states that are doing fantastic jobs on food waste, which is a huge environmental issue. Um, California, like Tara said, is trying to do its own thing that uh, can supersede the Trump administration changing the waters of the United States rule. And California has always taken a number of really important environmental steps to, made it, that made uh, that were done first. Um, so we're going to see an awful lot of that. Um, what we're also going to see some of these things that the the Trump administration has been changing. They've had they've got a terrible track record in court. They 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 just rammed stuff through and they broke the law in a lot of places and they're losing these court cases and and old rules are getting reinstated. Now the problem is, um, they also are shaving away at the, the people uh, and expertise and all the government agencies who are responsible for these things. So even if the old rules come back into place, who's going to enforce them? No one. Um, so we we got a lot of different things going on at once. I think we're going to see uh, a lot more happen on the state level and on the city and municipality level. We're going to see this, all the courts are going to be incredibly important. Um, we just saw it in the past couple weeks when the Juliana the versus the United States case got dismissed, um best known as youth v gov um that could have gone a lot further in theory but um that seems to be uh stymied at this point so the courts are going to be important the individual townships are going to be important Every every action on every level is going to matter and we're going to see it and we're going to be able to track and, and see what's working and and hopefully if uh if something's working in one place we can call attention to it as a, as a success story and uh, and see and uh, give uh, people the information to try to replicate it in other places
1: is this perhaps where we can like bring back you know the constitution and a, a government <laughs> by the people for the people versus you know being handed down these um uh laws that are pushed through as you said um we just don't follow them and we work very Dedicated to overturn them at the local, nas- uh, state, and national level and then sort of force the hand of the federal government coming in the future, soon, I hope, to reinstate these protections. So maybe, maybe this brings us to a point about the importance of the Supreme Court.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and I'm not exactly sure what's coming up on the Supreme Court this year. But we've already seen an awful lot of actions that maybe make me feel a little apprehensive. <laughs> the immig- immigration rules, um, various other things. The, the court is is weighed a little bit more on the conservative side. Um, and this could even balance out, this could even play a role in the impeachment hearings. Um, so we're going to see. I think it's going to be incredibly important. It's going to be tough to watch. Um Expl- a lot of
1: great people. Explain <laughs> that. Explain that, you know, a little bit on the conservative side and could play a role in the impeachment trials. Well, so far what I'm seeing is the Republicans are, are acting bored. You know, they're, <laughs> they're basically blocking everything. So on the bigger picture, what that tells me is the, the Trump support base who are watching, not necessarily listening, but seeing. When you see somebody not pay attention – then you have a tendency, if that's your belief system or your, um, your view, to take on that same attitude. Just turn away and ignore it like it's not important.
2: Well, that's the great tragedy with the, the world right now, isn't it? When people yeah. not paying attention. And, and we have to, I, I think that um, in some ways, the ecosystems we, we build around ourselves are our own worst enemy. Uh, if we are only interested in certain bits of information, we don't let anything else go in through a bubble because we're so wrapped up in our own identities, um, then you're never going to see the value of the, you know, preserving an orchid or an insect from extinction. You're never going to see the value of, of preserving the world from climate change because uh, your your pastor tells you that climate change is a, a scientific hoax uh, and anything else is an attack on your your. Christian values, which is uh, some of the arguments that are being made. So um, there, I think we're going to be really depend on on. I'm going to follow the, a lot of the scientific communicators who are doing great jobs trying to break through those bubbles. Catherine Hayhoe is a fantastic example. Yeah. She interacts with people on Twitter in a way that that changes minds. Right, and and
1: and she's just- she's she's Christian. And, yeah, uh, you she's, know, an she's
2: evangelical, and right. she does a fabulous job at it. And she's a real inspiration to me, and a lot of other people. And trying to find ways that can that we can communicate in a way that that changes that, and, and that that's going to break it through. And that, yeah, that's not the Supreme Court that we're talking about, but it is the world. Right. And um, and what? I think it. I think it. it if the if the elected <laughs> officials are sending one message, we need to see if there are other effective ways to get messages to people that uh, that work.
1: Well, it brings me back to another little point you said there, you know, the Christian value system. There are a lot of us who are not Christian um, or mm-hmm. or don't follow. We follow a value system for sure and an ethic and a moral and value system of what we need and what's important. You know, I, for one, think the planet is important because I'd like to see things survive, um, but, you know, that's not necessarily a Christian um, religious thing. So when I'm seeing a lot happening, and maybe this is way off base for this particular <laughs> conversation, but this Christian value Im- importance it- in this election, how is that going to affect non-Christians in this country who vote? That's-
2: that's a good question. I mean, I'm not a religious expert by any means, shape, or form.
1: No, just but, as a layperson. <laughs> n- neither am but, I.
2: But, um, I don't know. There, there, there are certain groups of people that are being told to vote in a certain way, and that's that's who they're going to listen to. But uh, what I, at the same time, I, mean, I, I you mentioned that the, the columns I do about books, uh, environmental books that come out each month, and right. I just see a, an incredible preponderance, a great deal of books from all religious faiths talking about rel- these environmental issues. So I think the awareness is happening, and the push and the drive is happening on on multiple levels of society, and we're going to see change. And I think everyone, I think more people agree on doing the right thing than don't. Uh, Maybe I'm just being a Pollyanna that way, Um, but I think statistics show that we're we're better people than we're not, and uh, and hopefully that will play through in the long run.
1: Well, I know historically when things really come push to shove, we do come together. I mean, you see it in small groups of people. When someone is hurt, falls down on the street, somebody usually stops to help. So, you know, in these small groups of what are we going to do for our fellow and for our environment, we're going to take right versus wrong, good versus evil actions without putting a religious bent on that. So hopefully, you know, this this moral compass, this ethical compass will regain a value system as we see so much being torn asunder under the name of these various aspects and perspectives. I can't yep. disagree. Okay. Well, we've got, um, we've got a couple minutes left. Um, wh- where would you like to take this? What are some other positive messages of, of hope or that we can look for on the uh, therevelator.org?
3: Uh, well, Tara? <laughs> I'll just say one thing uh, just to tease maybe a future conversation but one of the issues that I love writing about is dam removal because that I think is, is, a, is a good news environmental story that we don't hear a lot of these days yes. um, and so every, every, every dam removal story that I've covered in terms of the ecological impacts we, we end up hearing just a lot of really good news for species restoration and oftentimes it's done to help restore fish species uh, many times salmon but the, the ripple effect is so large and there's so many other species that are, that are benefited by dam removal and by the return of larger runs of fish or fish accessing headwaters that they, they had been cut off from for 50 or 100 years um, that the, the results are really heartening, I think. And then also, I've noticed that in a lot of places where this is done, where dams have been removed in, in more suburban or urban communities, there is a relationship that changes between the people who live there and the river. And um, and that, I think, is also significant, and people reconnecting to a place. Um, and I think that is important right now um, when we're looking for, for things to, to feel good about and for ways to be trying to affect positive change, um, that just being able to reorient ourselves with the natural world is helpful.
1: I agree with that. I live on a river, so it's been a part of my daily life for 40, 50 years, you know. And you, the water you touch in a river is always new water it goes around the world it feeds the world and every day you see it it's it's a mesmerizing, huge concept to understand water, which is your specialty. So I am personally, you know, very geared toward the water and the river. And I've been watching a lot of films on biodiversity and the the last salmon run up in Bristol Bay and the threat that it's under with this current administration of getting the pebble gold and copper mine going and what that would do to a 4,000-year-old culture. And you know, fourteen thousand jobs to bringing in eight hundred to a thousand jobs and decades of what would be environmental disaster on this last salmon run, and the relationship the people have there to the bay and the rivers have you Have you been doing any work on that at all
3: um you know interesting i I wrote about that story probably. Ten years ago or more, um, that, that that fight has been going on for a very long time, um, and um, I wish I wish that it had been positive, reso- positively resolved by this point because it is an incredibly important ecosystem um, and culturally important ecosystem.
1: Well, it's going to come up this year again, whether they get their the pebble mine gets their um, EPA permit or not. So I think that's something we all need to kind of watch out for. So, um, we're basically out of time today. Uh, Tara, uh, I thank you so much. I really look forward to having another episode with you and talking mo- strictly focused on water because it's, it's everything. Water is life. And I don't think I'm even, you know, right now, um, imagining all the things you could inform us on about the connectivity of water. And John, as usual, it's always a pleasure talking to you. It's, it's great. So um, once again, I thank you both for your time.
3: Glad to be here. Yeah. Thanks for having us.
1: You're welcome. Thank you. And once again, listeners go to therevelator.org, Google search extinction countdown, Google search Tara Lohan, L-O-H-A-N, and John Platt, P-L-A-T-T, and find out who we're talking to today and um, why these folks are on this show and why they're worth listening to. And uh, you can find our Wild World and Wild Eyes Foundation on Facebook and uh, follow us there. And meanwhile, step out into your wild world.